If there are any of you who are new with us this morning, hello, my name is Jordan. Please come introduce yourself to me after the service. I'm new as well, and we can share experiences of being new together. (laughs) Two Sundays ago, we encountered Jesus, the host, providing breakfast for his disciples on the beach. Last Sunday, we encountered Jesus, the guest, attending a wedding reception. This week, we encountered Jesus, the teacher, debating the top professor of his day in the middle of the night. The crux of the debate comes in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Familiar verse? Yeah. I remember as the first verse I ever memorized, I was a little kid, and the church I went to had something called Royal Rangers. Is that familiar to you? Okay, good. Other places I've lived in the world, they just give me blank stares when I say that. But I remember the first badge I ever got in Royal Rangers was about four years old because I memorized John 3.16 in the King James Version, and uh, the language that you use when you're four. And uh, so I got my little pen. But it's the verse that athletes quote after a marvelous victory, and they're being interviewed, and they happen to be Christian. It's the verse that is put on the bottom of cups at fast food restaurants. It's the verse that churches tend to display on big billboards and on banners, normally with some sort of marvelous sunset in the background. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's marvelous, but it's so familiar that it easily loses its punchiness for us. Now, before getting to John 3.16, I want to put this in context for us a little bit, because it's easy for this verse and all its familiarity to lose its punchiness and also to be kind of sentimentalized. But when you see John 3.16 in the context of the whole gospel, you realize that it is taking place in quite a conflictual context. John begins this picture at the beginning of his gospel. It's a cosmic perspective. He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, all things were made through this Word, and in Him was life. And then in verse 5, it talks about conflict that enters into this cosmic picture. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. The darkness does not overcome it, does not comprehend God, does not understand God. And so right away at the beginning of John's gospel, John is painting this big cosmic picture of God's relationship to his creation, of light and darkness in some sort of contest and conflict with one another. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And the conflict continues throughout chapter 1. Jesus, it says, comes to his own people, and his people do not receive him. They reject him. John the Baptist is bearing witness to this light, Jesus, who's about to come, and his public ministry is about to take center stage. And John the Baptist has Jewish rulers coming to him and questioning his ministry. They say, who are you? What do you say for yourself? Why are you baptizing? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. And the conflict continues in chapter 2. It becomes even sharper. Jesus marches up to Jerusalem during the greatest holiday of the year, Passover. There would have been some 200,000 people that probably flooded to Jerusalem in that time. He goes straight into the temple and he clears it out. He makes a whip of cords and sends out those selling animals 
He flips over tables and pours out money bags of those that are selling in the market of the temple. So when we come to chapter 3, tension has been building between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And so they send Nicodemus to meet Jesus, to confront him in the middle of the night. You see, normally Nicodemus is painted as this kind of innocent spiritual seeker. And I'm not saying that that's totally wrong. I'm not saying that he wasn't genuinely inquisitive. What I'm saying is there's more to the story. The Nicodemus story takes place in the midst of a story of cosmic conflict. Nicodemus' name literally means the conquering one. He's likely from the family of Gurion, which was a wealthy family. It would have been kind of like the aristocratic elite of the day. We're told that he was a ruler of the Jews, which in that day would have been kind of like the liberal party. And also it says that he was a Pharisee, which in that day would have been the conservative party. So he's, he's kind of a unique individual. And it also says that he is the teacher of Israel, is how Jesus addresses him. He's one of the top theologians and professors of his day. And so Nicodemus is no average Joe. He's a superstar in Judaism. He's the highest of the high, the best of the best, the most intelligent and the most educated and the most capable, the top of his class, and he is the one who is sent to Jesus. Has Nicodemus come to challenge Jesus? In verse 4, is Nicodemus maybe even mocking Jesus? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's prodding Jesus. And three times in our passage, Jesus counters back to him. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born from above. Again, Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Again, truly, truly, I say to you, you've not heard what I'm saying to you. And as the debate goes on, Nicodemus becomes increasingly silent, confused, and frustrated. He's backed into a corner, and he has nowhere to go. It's as if he realizes all of a sudden that he's bit off more than he can chew. And he's a bit exacerbated. And finally, in verse 9, we hear him say, how can these things be, Jesus? And Jesus responds with a rebuke of sorts. A gentle rebuke, he says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? But then it's right as Jesus seems to have Nicodemus backed into a corner. Jesus seems to have won the debate. He could deliver the final blow at this point to the top religious leader of his day. But instead of crushing Nicodemus, Jesus gives him the gospel. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus holds up hope, Nicodemus. And it's right in the context of hope that we hear John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave. It might be better translated, I think, in this way, God loved the world. He gave his son. God's love is not described just as an emotion or a feeling, but it's described as an action. 
It's Jesus born in Bethlehem. Jesus walking the streets of Galilee. Jesus lifted up on a Roman cross. That is the concrete love of God for the world in action. Jesus backs Nicodemus into a corner. He confounds and confuses him, but he does not crush him. He says, this is the love of God, and he invites him to participate in it. For God did not send his son into the world, says Jesus, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, this is a fascinating thing that Jesus is doing here. God conquers the world. God is victorious over darkness. Darkness cannot overcome him. But the way in which God does it is not with brute force or unbridled power. The way in which God does it is by extending to the world that is hostile to him his love and his grace and his goodness. It's something that we see all throughout the scriptures and it's image that is painted for us at the very end quite often. Who is the one that conquers in the book of Revelation? Who is the one that is victorious over all the nations in the book of Revelation? Who is the one that casts the devil into the sea finally in the book of Revelation? It is the lamb who was slain. It was the lamb who laid down his life. It was the lamb who spilt his blood. A great theologian, since we're talking about Nick Damis, a great, a great theologian, we might as well mention the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. He makes this wonderful reflection. He says, what marks out God above all false gods is not simply that they are high and lifted up, but it's that they are not capable and willing to do this. In their otherworldliness and supernaturalness and otherness, the gods are a reflection of the human pride, which will not bend low, and which will not stoop to that which is beneath it. But our God is not proud. In his high majesty, he is humble, and in his abundance, he gives. In this way, God loved the world. He gave. If we were to think of the five love languages and try to determine which one applies to God most thoroughly, he's a gift giver. But the gifts that he gives are not just things that are separate from himself. The gifts that he gives is his very self. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, John 3.16 is far from some sort of sentimental slogan that we need to paint on a big billboard with a nice sunset in the background. John 3.16 is a message of concrete love and concrete hope for everyone. And it's also a dividing line in the sand. You see, Jesus goes on to say that not everyone responds to this good news, this astonishing gospel, in exactly the same way. Some people love the darkness, and they do evil, and they do not respond well to this gospel. But some people, they come to the light, and they do the truth, and they respond to it properly. And interestingly, Jesus describes these two worlds as the kind of a realm of condemnation and a realm of salvation. And the way in which he talks about the response to this gospel is not like some far-off, distant, esoteric, someday judgment sort of thing that you're going to be either condemned or saved. He's talking about these as lived realities right in the present. He says how you respond to this graciousness of Jesus right in the present 
determines whether you're living a life of, of judgment or whether you're living a life of grace. See, I think what Jesus is trying to do in these verses is he's trying to show us, draw attention to the ways in which our loves and our actions are deeply interconnected and how that then informs the way in which we respond to Jesus. So notice, he says, those who love the darkness do wickedness. Those who come to the light do the truth. So he links loving and doing together. He says, in a sense, our loves guide what we do. And what we do, in a sense, shapes what we love. They're deeply intertwined. And both of them inform the way that we respond to Jesus. It says if Jesus is saying, if you resist coming to me and trusting me and following me, maybe there's actually an issue with your loves. Maybe there's actually an issue with your life. Now, there's a lot here. To start untangling that in our own lives would take a lot of time. But one of the ways to start perceiving this in our own lives is by asking just a couple simple questions. What does this particular action or this habit or this attitude in my life reflect and reveal about what I love? What does this reflection, this action or habit or attitude reflect or reveal about what I love? And that will send you on a bit of a journey. And then you could flip the question around a bit. You could say, how does this action or this habit or this attitude shape the direction and orientation of my life? So how does this action and this habit shape the direction and the orientation of my love? And Jesus presses even further, actually, when we get to verses 20. He teases into the inner motivations of our hearts a bit further. He says, People do not come to him the light, lest their deeds be exposed. So Jesus is prodding further. He's saying, when people don't come to me, it's often because they don't want to really face who they are. They don't really want other people to see who they are. And they definitely don't want who they are to be in the light of the presence of the living God. Because darkness has a way of hiding. Sin has a way of wanting to remain anonymous and secretive. But those who come to the light, in contrast, Jesus says, that they are the people who they want it to be clear that their deeds have been carried out in God. Now, I think this is a reference back to the beginning of the passage when Jesus talks about being born again, and he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I think what he's saying is he's saying those who come to the light and want to live in the light, those people want it to be clear that their deeds are the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. See, those who love the darkness want to hide from the light. They want their lives to be a secret, their deeds to be a secret. Those who come to the light want their deeds to be, it to be made very clear that their deeds are the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Because we need a renovating work of the Holy Spirit in order to enter into the love and the gift and the grace and the kingdom of God. I think that's one of the reasons why I decided when I first showed up that we would put the collect for purity at the very beginning of our liturgies. A really simple change, but we would just put it there. 
Because what is better than starting with asking for the Holy Spirit to come and to cleanse us and to inspire us to enter into worship, to enter into his kingdom, to be renovated and to be renewed and to be made whole and to be sent out again into the world. Holy Spirit, come, cleanse, and inspire. Have any of you read Augustine, or Augustine, I don't know, however you want to say it, uh, Confessions? He has, it's his spiritual autobiography. And I'm, I've always been touched by that. He describes his life as one restless searching after God. What a lot of people see Nicodemus as doing, coming to Jesus to confront him, but also there's this deep search in him, wanting to understand the truth. And it kind of maps Augustine's spiritual journey as he goes from being a professor of rhetoric to being a Manichaean to being a Platonist to being a Christian and this whole thing. But Augustine confesses that in the end, he has an inability to cleave to the God that he actually searches for. He says, I was in no kind of doubt to whom I should attach myself, in whom I should believe, in whom I should trust. But he says, I was not yet in a state to be able to do that. I don't know about you, but I find that very true of the way that I often feel. I know to whom I should cleave. I know in whom I should trust. But do I feel I have the power to do so? And so the key question that Augustine raises is he says, how can salvation, he's speaking to God, how can salvation be obtained, O Lord, unless your hand remakes that which you once made? See, he's making a reference to the inner work of the Holy Spirit bringing about new life. And it's wonderful because once Augustine has this conversion experience of the inner work of the Spirit allowing the light of Jesus to shine in his life, he speaks of the total renovation of his person that the Spirit brings about, and he describes it using the five senses. And he says this. He says, God, you called and cried out, and you shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent, and you put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew my breath, and now I pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to obtain the peace which is yours. The Holy Spirit bringing about a total renovation of the human person so that people may enter into the kingdom of God. They may receive the gift that God has for them in the Son, and they may know eternal and deep and abiding life. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Why? In this way, God loved the world. He sent his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.